We'll intervene whenever we decide it's in our national security interest to intervene. And if you don't like it, lump it. The problem with America is not that we go around marauding around the world imposing ourselves. The problem with America in the last 10, 15 years since the end of the Cold War, really in the last 60 years, is that we've been too slow to get involved. I don't know how many Iraqi civilians were killed, but I can assure you that the number is the absolute minimal that it's possible uh, in modern warfare. Every nation in every region now has a decision to make. Either you are with us or you are with the terrorists. Now, that land over there is yours. You'll go back to it one day because your fight will prevail and you'll have your homes and your mosques back again because your cause is right and God is on your side. Welcome to the Darkened Hour. Hello, everyone. Adam Fitzgerald, co-host of the Darkened Hour. Uh, my guest today is Ross Muir. I had the meeting Ross in a Facebook forum, but I had the distinct pleasure to actually meet him um, when I visited uh, Ground Zero for the first time uh, since 1997. That was before the towers had collapsed and the attacks happened on September 11, 2001. Ross is uh, a member of the 9-11 Truth Movement, and we chatted for a while. Um, and we talked, and he gave me a short synopsis what he believed happened at the towers as they collapsed on September 11th, which contradicts the report given by NIST. Now, I'm generally not someone who holds any position regarding the towers, how they collapsed, due to my lack of education in the matter of physics. However, I wanted to bring Ross on today and let him explain in full what he knows regarding this topic and let him explain to you what he feels happened at the towers. Russ, how does the meeting find you? Uh, yes, very good. Thanks. Uh, uh, my pleasure to be on your uh, blog, blog, blog and podcast. And um, yeah, I've uh, been involved in the, in uh, looking into 9-11 really ever since uh, it happened. I was there on the day. and um, But to be honest, I didn't really get into the uh, the actual truth aspect for another 13 years, and um, I could explain that, but um, basically, I don't know if you want to go into how I got into the truth uh, aspect of 9-11, I guess it's because I finally figured out about the lie, but... Uh, sure, well, um, who's actually for your background, your expertise in this area? Yeah, well, I'm a, a architectural trained by education, architectural engineer, which is a a degree from the University of Colorado in Boulder. It's a um, civil engineering degree, basically, but it uh, concentrates on building systems more so than uh, wastewater treatment or uh, urban highway and transportation system. It focuses on building. So my uh, focus there was uh, my um, uh, main uh, degree was on in structural engineering within that school of architectural engineering. And uh, the bachelor's, master's degree is kind of in between because it was a five-year program. And so it, uh, some colleges it would qualify as a master's, others it's a bachelor's. But uh, my family is a family of architects. I worked for my father starting at the age of eight, 
drafting. My mom got tired of having me around the house summertime, so uh, I went down to Dad's office, started drafting, and uh, my brother's an architect as well. And uh, I began working in New York City as an architect after college, um, and then moved into lighting design as a as a focus and an expertise, which is what I've been doing for the majority of my uh, professional life. Um, and again, I I was there on the day of 9/11. Um, so saw things with my own eyes and my own heard things with my own ears and tasted with my own mouth the taste of the dust and smelled it. And um, so I have a pretty pretty hands-on working knowledge of what uh, what that day was about and what those towers were about. Sure. And what what uh, besides being there that day and seeing the events happen before you? Did this always have a vested interest for you, the, uh, the events of September 11th? And why did you want to join the 9-11 Truth Movement? Yeah, well, I came in kind of a, around the back door. Again, as I said, it took me 13 years to really to get there, uh, 13 years after the event. Um, and that was because that, on that day when it happened, I, I'm a freelance. I was a freelancer. I've been that for the last 25 years. And um, I knew that my economy or my profession and my workflow was going to change pretty dramatically. It was pretty much a watershed moment for the economy that day. And um, I immediately began looking into studying how the economy worked. I wasn't interested in the criminal aspect of 9-11 because I didn't suspect it at the time too strongly. I always had faith in the government at that time uh, that they would actually do their due diligence and, and you know, uh, investigate. And specifically, I gathered some of the dust. I thought, well, here's the key because it was so strange that it was dust, um, not just crumbles or, uh, you know, pieces of concrete of other things like we would get when we would smash structures in the, in the college labs. Never, never had that kind of a gravity collapse result in powder. So it smelled as well. And I thought, well, they'll test this and there was going to be some kind of clues as to how it could turn to powder. Uh, the concrete and um, and but then I focused on the economy as I said because I was worried about my own just survival and what's going to happen I thought I better figure out how the economy works here and um, over the years started to come through the um, connections to 9-11 vis-a-vis the economy uh, studies that I was doing and of course we had the collapse in 207 and all that was leading to kind of some of the same names and, and people, characters that had been mentioned in the truth movement about 9-11. And um, so my brother, an architect, again, said after 13 years and some other people as well had mentioned that I should look at the whole uh, day again on online. And I thought, OK, I'll do it. I didn't like doing it. I didn't watch the Towers Clutch too many times on TV, on video, because it was too painful after seeing it with my own eyes. And I, did do that again after 13 years and pretty quickly said, okay, well, it does look like a building being blown up. Um, so what a, I thought, well, I'll go back to my original premise. I might as well look and see what the government found when they you know, looked into it, when they studied specifically the dust samples. And uh, of course, lo and behold, uh, then I was completely awakened when it turns out the government didn't study the dust samples they didn't need to they felt it was not uh, explosives they didn't look for explosives of course that was a red flag for me 
as you're supposed to at least do a basic research, if not a thorough research. You would think it'd be a thorough research in the largest terrorist incident on, in, in, the United, in the world to that point. Um, but they felt that it wasn't necessary for them to even look into the dust. So that was suspicious. I, of course, immediately knew that uh, likely I would find that uh, explosives were used, like I was being told in various circles. And, um, well, basically, that's how I, I got into um, beginning to really look into the research on what happened that day. Well, now that we're on the topic, one of the hottest topics, anyway, regarding uh, the events of September 11th has always been centered around World Trade Center 7. So I guess we could start yeah. with that. And um, one of the questions posed uh, to NIST in their webpage, and they ask, how did the fire cause the collapse of World Trade Center 7? And their answer they gave was the following, quote, the heat from the uncontrolled fires caused steel floor beams and girders thermally expand, leading to a chain of events that caused a key structural column to fail. The failure of this structural column then initiated a fire-induced progressive collapse of the entire building. According to the report's probable collapse sequence, heat from the uncontrolled fires caused thermal expansion of the steel beams on the lower floors of the east side of World Trade Center 7, damaging the floor framing on multiple floors, end quote. Where in this response would you disagree with, and what method would you use to contradict this narrative given by NIST? Well, uh, first of all, I, the very nature of the statement, uncontrolled fires, um, uh, really, I didn't see any visible evidence, and I don't know how they would have evidence since they say nobody was in the building at the time um, for hours before the, uh, the building came down that the, the fires were actually uncontrolled. Um, the other point I would make, that, and this was a, I kind of learned this more recently, uh, because in college we were taught that steel had to have fireproofing on it, and that was because, well, it, it was not as good it, um, as, say, wood, for example. It would not last as long in a fire, so therefore it had to have the fireproofing. Well, it and that, I kind of was going on that assumption uh, for a few years on 9-11, too, about this thing. It's fires brought these buildings down. And I, but I looked into that with steel, and what it really turns out is the steel isn't going to give up um, in, and structurally fail, like they kind of couched it in college, due to uh, lack of fireproofing. Um, what it will do is it will weaken, and it will deform. And that weakening and deforming is a thing called plastic inelastic, which means it's going to deform. And when that fire cools down, it's not going to snap back to its original shape. So, in other words, the, the uh, NIST was saying that the, you know, the four beams expanded, pushing a girder off its seat on a column. Now, yeah, the beams can expand, but... Uh, it was proven by the construction of the building that the beam could not have been slid off the top of the column because there were supports on the side that would prevent any movement in that direction. The steel, if it had expanded the way they were saying, the floor beams would have just bent and deformed. It would lose 50% of its strength. It wouldn't fail under any circumstances in terms of collapsing. Um, and 
you would just have this building once it cooled down, the fire stopped that was basically needed major repairs and was uh, uh, unusable until those repairs had taken place because the floors would be all bowed. And so that's, again, t taking a lot of topics on, in one uh, question. Fireproofing, if it's not used um, on steel, is not going to mean the building's going to collapse. It's going to mean you're going to have a, a very expensive repair. Um, because there are a lot of restraints built into steel, and again, it's not losing all of its strength all at once and melting or, or getting so hot that it's melting. It's actually just deforming and not snapping back into its original form. So, again, uh, Building 7 is a little bit ridiculous, too. Assuming, let's assume that NIST is right, uh, which they're not, that the columns, uh, the girder was pushed by those expanding perpendicular uh, beams off its seat on the top of a column. Well, that's one column out of, I think it's 52 or that are spread apart in that whole building. And so as their computer model shows, if that had happened, you would have the center part or a portion right underneath that column coming down and the rest of the building following in a very ununiform. Um, and then as in the this, this video actually shows how the top of the building actually falls over and twists over in their scenario where the one column failed. Um, uh, and of course, that's not what we saw. <laughs> we fortunately had somebody who reported it to the media too early that the building had come down. Uh, the other media people that didn't report that got suspicious, turned their cameras towards w uh, World Trade Center 7 to have it on film because they said, well, it's not down, it's standing bolt upright. Oh, so what are they talking about? Cameras are on it, four or five different cameras. And, you know, an hour later, then it comes down horizontally, the roof line horizontally at free fall speed for three seconds, which turns out to be a uh, unsupported length of three floors, I think it is, um, of, of every column in the building. So the visual evidence there, of course, is the main thing that the, the roof line was horizontal and you had free fall for three seconds. If one column is failing in the middle, uh, it's going to happen like NIST says it happened. There would be a slow progression of some kind of deformation of the building. Um, and as their computer model showed, it, it did not come down all the way. It started to twist over in the middle. Uh, very few people know what their full video looks like when they see the you know, NIST version of how the collapse went on their computer. Um, they stopped the video after the first three seconds. Um, which also doesn't look like what we saw. The first three seconds even doesn't look like what you saw that day, which was the whole top. You know, there was a middle portion coming down, but the exterior was not deformed at all um, in reality, in, in uh, you know, in the actual videos. But in this model, it shows that part where the column was really being destroyed, being visible on the outside of the building and nothing else of the building coming down for a while. And um, of course, and then again, as a computer model goes into it, after about five seconds, the whole top twists over uh, because it's not accounting for every column being taken out, um, which is the only thing that can make the building, the roof line come down at free fall speed horizontally. So that's, I mean, at World Trade Center 7, I get people do focus on that. And I think it's an important uh, forensic and uh, just evidentiary um, body of evidence but in the end i think a lot of people that are trying to deny the truth about 9-11 the fact that it really happened 
they'll just write that. They want to write W Trade Center 7 off that. Oh, well, Silverstein, maybe he committed insurance fraud. Um, maybe he planted, you know, rigged the building early for demolition because that's obviously what it looks like because he did, was planning on getting rid of that building in the future. Uh, but anyway, it's just insurance fraud. It's not, uh, nobody was murdered. And so, you know, that's a guy taking advantage of the system, but, and nothing more than that. But, um, again, I, I really try to get focused on World Trade Center one and two as dispositive. Um, and if we can go into the next, my main part of my talk, if you'd like to now, Adam, if you have sure. more questions. Yeah, sure. In fact, oh. uh, my, my, well, I, I, regarding the question about World Trade Center one and two, if you could, uh, can, yeah. you, can you explain for the audience what areas in World Trade Center one and two would need to be compromised in order for the building to collapse the way it did? Okay, that's a, I'm glad you asked that question because, you know, a classic demolition to take place on those two buildings would be, uh, you know, two-thirds of what we saw that day. In other words, like any of these buildings, even with World Trade Center 7, you, you take out the core columns at the base of the building at the bottom first, which then there's no support under the core portion of the building, so it starts to fall and pull in on the facade parts and the facade structures. So, you know, buildings one and two, of course, had a very special and particular strength to them. They had very strong exterior facade structure, much more than any building in history, and a much and then a much more robust uh, inner core that was further inside. So perfectly set up, really, for a com controlled demolition in some ways, because you can really get that core to pull um, on this, on the uh, from the exterior, and pull down on the whole building. Then, of course, the next phase of a demolition, after you've got the core pulling in, so that the building doesn't blow out too far sideways, is you begin to blow up the building sequentially from top to bottom, and the weight and the, the dynamics are already set up to pull the building in. It's called an implosion. Is why they call it an implosion because it comes in on itself because that core column is just hanging and whole, pulling on the whole structure. Um, now. World Trade Center 1 and 2 were 1,350 feet high, 1,362, 1,356 feet, respectively. Um, and so you can't just, you're going to have to do sequential explosions all the way down, which is what we saw on that day. However, the part that was missing on, a classic, uh, uh, on the classic demolition is the fact that there was, in the areas where the planes hit, we saw the top kind of being pulled down as if it, as if that area where the damage was from the plane impacts was um, causing the top to give up, that, that area to give up, and then the top to come crushing down on the rest of the building. Whereas in a classic demolition, of course, they wouldn't have had the plane damage, and they just would have pulled uh, from, the, from the interior core the whole building down and blown it up on the way down. They started the collapse, making it look like it was from the damage from the planes, and then the uh, core columns were pulling, and the sequential explosions began happening after you see the top move. See, and that was just a trick for the theatrics to, um, you know, make it look, oh, it's, it's where the planes hit, that damage is causing the buildings to begin to collapse, whereas really they, those areas had to be softened with uh, incendiaries. They didn't use massive bombs and world trade center two did have some 
pretty good sized ones on the core columns there in that corner where the plane came in. But like we're we're center one where it was weakening where the damage occurred from the plane impact. That whole perimeter had to be softened. Again, we're not talking about it's gonna fail structurally necessarily, because again, you got two hundred and forty columns on that outside structure. And um for all, you know, and only uh, 40 of the, those columns were compromised by the plane impact out of the 240 um, buildings, way oversized. So for it uh, to be able to handle, you know, a loss of many more columns than just 40 before it's going to even move. Um, and what we saw was that top starting to come down. So those had to be weakened. That whole floor, those that whole 98th floor, which is, you know, just three floors above where the plane's impacted, four or flat five floors above where the plane impacted, was weakened uh, by, you know, this high heat, very high heat, not uh, jet fuel, 500 degrees Fahrenheit, but the 2,000 degree thermite incendiary heat was going to weaken that steel pretty good so that when they did start to pull from the car, it was actually going to move before there, anything else which is what we saw when we saw that. And we see the antenna, World Trade Center 1, coming down before even the um, the top damage portion begins to come down. Once that top damage portion begins to come down because it's weakened there from the incendiaries, then, of course, you start the real show with the uh, internal elevator core sequential uh, uh, IEDs, improvised explosive devices. They think maybe eight per floor and maybe every um, there were eight floors set up to do that sequentially down the building with eight big bombs in the core, which of course is why you get the dust, why there was no concrete left and no steel trusses from the concrete floors, nothing pancake or left uh, on site, pure dust is because it, it was the core, very powerful explosion pushing out to the whole building. And, uh, but the core again, the steel part pulling down as, as the, sequential explosions happen from top to bottom. So I could get into some simple arithmetic analysis of 9-11 that kind of explains what I just said, if you'd like. Sure. Or if you want to ask another question. No, no, no. Yeah, so, okay, so I call this, uh, I'll call this part of the lecture, 9-11, the man-made asteroid. Because uh, basically... The only way you could have gotten that to come down in uh, the time that we're talking about is if that top was more like an asteroid rather than a part of the building that just begins into free fall. Um, it would have to have the momentum of an asteroid to take down the rest of the building. So the way it did. Um, I'm going to, I'm just going to go into that technical part here about dispositive evidence with the lawyers committee lawsuit. And um, this is, the uh, the meaning of dispositive is critical to the notion of why 9-11 is so important. Um, what I just touched on um, about the first tower, one and two, they coming down in 10 and a half seconds, it was actually nine and a half and 10 and a half respectively, um, um, is impossible. Uh, and I will go into why that is uh, in a minute here. Um, and if it's impossible, then that's dispositive evidence that something else happened there. It, it wasn't a gravity collapse. Um, and I'm just going to step back a second here, and let's just say, why is 9-11 even still important for people to even know what the truth is here? So we're called truthers. I'm glad we are. 
called truthers. And it's basically simple arithmetics, uh, arithmetic that um, you've got one operator here, the operator's equal sign, you know, and everybody knows what the equal sign means. So I'm going to use some words to sum up equation here about what kind of world that uh, we all say we want to have. And this kind of world with this one uh, equal sign is truth equals trust equals prosperity equals caring equals peace equals humanity or humane. Now, the, all those words work together and they work circularly and that's uh, they all do imply the other word in, in, in deeply in many respects. However, we don't live in that kind of world. <laughs> we live in a world here that is a, another equation, which is lies equals distrust equals debt equals contempt equals war equals inhuman. And that turns out to be the real world we're living in. So 9-11 is the most important event in regards to discovering what kind of world we live in and what kind of world we want to live in because of this dispositive evidence, because of the um, fact that such a big event like that, so easily proven to be a, a false or a lie with so many implications towards diverting us away from the world we want to have to the world we, we live in, um, easily undercovered if you want as people to pay attention to it. We don't have to be scientists. We don't have to have a math background. We don't have to have an engineering background. Uh, it helps, obviously, but it's not necessary. And um, to understand that the dispositive evidence about the buildings not being able to be brought down by gravity or fires um, um, implies, especially with the government's lack of due diligence in the, in the largest terrorist supposed terrorist event in, in human history, that there's something to be hidden there. There's something they're trying to hide. And the diversion, of course, has taken us all into that world we don't want, which is a world that is a benefit to the psychopath, to the elite, to the criminal elite, to their own interests, not to the interests of humanity. And it, it must be so because you're not going to do something like the 9-11 event unless, unless you are really um, truly uh, criminal <laughs> and evil would be another word you can use there. So um, this diversion uh, has taken place with 9-11. So let me tell you, so it's important to discover this truth because it's easy to discover and we don't need the government to tell us what to believe on this because it's very simple arithmetic to realize that, uh, what the lie, what a big lie it was. And I'll go into that now, again, back to this technical part of why the buildings couldn't go down the way they did without help um, or without it being an asteroid from way up high. And that is because people, if you think about the engineers who designed the buildings, trust me, as a somebody who designed, designed small projects, you get pretty nervous about anything falling from any height that could hurt or kill somebody um, if it fails. And I've had a few projects I've had to do where I've had lights up in the air, big heavy ones, and had to design the structure for them, and you know, wind and hurricanes coming into town, and, and you, you you lose sleep. Uh, you really do with all the expertise and whatever you know. You still know that it's your responsibility to make sure that that thing stands up and doesn't uh, you know kill somebody. 
So these engineers had a special challenge here. World Trade Center 1 and 2, to this day, have by far the largest wind load ever uh, uh, encountered by any structure in the history of the planet, even to this day. And, um, you know, in New York, we get hurricanes uh, on a fairly regular basis. Um, and you're going to have the 200 to plus mile per hour winds hitting that large rectangular facade. I mean, you see buildings today are built and they're more or less triangular shaped. And one of the main reasons for that is, you know, the wind load is so enormous if you have a big rectangular shaped building. Well, so these engineers really, they're not going to be with this historic uh, structure, they're not in the slightest bit worried about necessarily cost or schedule. What they're really worried about is, okay, this wind load is going to come along. If we get a hurricane, we can evacuate the building. Buildings, they're never thinking the building's going to come down. They're thinking a high wind load's going to come along and distort that building and make it unusable and make it a laughing stock. And um, you maybe will kill some people if the aluminum siding just blows off and they might have gotten involved in that because in a hurricane you could have maybe that aluminum siding coming off and that's certainly going to hurt somebody if it hits them on the ground. But the real problem is you cannot have that one of those kind of winds to form or, or make that building tip, making it the, you know, the largest leaning towers of Pisa in the world for your blue chip clients that are the occupants of that building. Just be a laughing stock and you'll... <laughs> And they won't be able to fix it as well. I mean, it probably wouldn't be able to be fixed if, if those buildings had deformed in any kind of wind where they weren't straight up and down and the, and the floors were tilted slightly. So they were not at all concerned about cost or schedule. They were worried about the strength of that. Uh, so they, what they did to alleviate their fear was make it into a triangle, that building. And the way they did that from an engineering standpoint Certainly, architecture looks like a rectangle. But what they did from a structural engineering standpoint to make it a pyramid was the exterior structure, which was the facade, was going to be very robust. It was going to be very heavy at the bottom and sequentially lighter as it rose to the top. So it would be very bottom heavy for a wind not to be able to just blow it over. And um, that would also apply as well to the core structure which would be uh, also very heavy at the bottom and just getting sequentially lighter towards the top. So this exterior facade is very far out on the outside as well, so it's going to act like a, a composite giant beam, basically, it's like a giant tube. But again, it's heavier and stronger at the bottom because what's called the overturning moment, when a wind blows a building or anything, the part that's connected at the bottom or at the ground has to resist the wind with what's called the overturning moment. And if you don't resist it, then the building will overturn. So again, you do there's, you make the building very strong and heavier at the bottom relative to the top. Well, you see the building looks like a rectangle. So you say, how do they, so what do they do to make it a, a pyramid? Well, what they did with those exterior columns was there were 240 of them, quite a lot of them, every three foot, four inches on center. Every column's outside dimension from the bottom to the top, the outside dimension was 14 inches by 14 inches from the, at the bottom and 14 inches by 14 inches at the top. That's the outer dimension of the box column at the tube. However, what they did was they made the wall thickness sequentially thicker from the bottom and thinner toward the top 
whereas at the bottom, the wall thickness of those 14 by 14 inch steel columns were was three inches, the wall thickness. So that means the, the hollow part of the tube is only eight inches, in, in, you know, clear. So you have a big three inch thick steel wall, 14 by 14 inch column. By the time you got up to the top, and they did it in nine uh, gradations, by the time you got to the top, you had only a wall thickness, and this is where the planes went in, by the way, the, at least in the Tower One, um, the first plane, of only a quarter of an inch, one quarter of an inch. So basically the whole tube, the full 14 inch tube is basically hollow by the time you get to the top. And the core, the core structure was very similar. Uh, it had five foot by three and a half foot rectangular columns that had six inch wall thicknesses and it had a six inch rib down the middle. By the time you got to the top and the core, it was even more dramatic. You had just standard, uh, uh, standard 12 inch by 12 inch I-beam in the core, in the elevator course. So, and of course the concrete was all the same from the bottom floors to the top. That load and that mass wasn't, couldn't be like made to be like a triangle. It just had to re transfer the loads from the outer structure into the core when there was this wind. And of course support the floor load of the, of the tenant floor. So that concrete was, was not in a pyramidal mass shape. It was a rectangular shape, but they used lightweight concrete. I think this is where they get away with the idea that the, uh, you know, or the saying that, oh, the towers were lightly constructed or lightweight constructed. Well, it's true. The concrete on the floor slabs was a lightweight concrete, 30% less weight than a standard concrete. And, then, and you know, the, the floor slabs, again, all they got to do is transfer the load from the outer facade to the inner core, and there's 110 of them. They can get away and they can use the lightweight concrete. They make the slab thicker. They were pouring bar trusses, high strength steel bar trusses into, into those floor slabs. So you need a thickness of concrete there to grab onto the bar truss of the steel. And um, so again, too, the, the another thing they did besides just making the wall thicknesses uh, change as the building went up, they used a much higher strength steel for the bottom than at the top. They used a special grade, very expensive. The buildings were not cheap by any sense, in the structural sense, <laughs> or in any sense, really. And um, this high strength steel they used towards the bottom is four times, um, actually not four times, three times stronger than a standard grade structural steel you see used on buildings everywhere. So they used special grade steel, and then they also used uh, a grade that was twice as strong as your normal grade of steel in the middle. And again, these bar trusses were you, that were used on the floor slabs were um, thin, but they were this high strength uh, ASTM 100 is what it's called, grade steel, grade steel, um, that was also very strong, um, which was vaporized with the concrete floor slabs, by the way. You don't see any of that in the rubble. You would see those trusses mangled. They're not going to just vaporize. <laughs> um, and you see none of those. I haven't seen a picture that has even one of those uh, floor trusses that's integrated with the concrete in any of the rubble. Um, so, okay, bottom line, we know how the buildings were built very strong, heavy at the bottom, lightweight at the top, to the point where the top part of building number one was hit um, only weighed one twentieth of what the rest of the building, the healthy building below weighed. People say, oh, well, the building, the plane hit an eighth of the way up, so it should be one eighth 
let's see, but what I just explained about the pyramidal weight of the steel, uh, in particular, including with the, you know, the, including the concrete is not pyramidal, but that weight, those masses work out to be that that top portion, one eighth, visually, is only one twentieth in mass. So, of the rest of the, uh, compared to the rest of the building, the 1920th of the building below, which again was healthy, was not damaged by fires, was not damaged by flames. So this lightweight top, if it were to have been removed and pulled over to the side and just let go through the thin air, would reach through the thin air, the ground down 1,200 feet, 1,200 feet in eight and a half seconds in thin air. So now you're going to tell me that there, that top part of that building is going to come down through its path of most resistance, which I've already described, 1920th of the mass of the building, healthy. It's going to come through that, straight through the middle of it, and it's going to hit the ground in 10 and a half seconds, which means that that healthy, super robust, heavy part of that structure is giving you two seconds of additional resistance to thin air. That's over 1,200 feet, that's 1,001, 1,002. All right. I think there, nobody has to be a, anything but a human being to know the dispositive nature of the fact that you, it's going to be hard to argue that anything else happened but that that heavy, healthy structure below was taken out by explosives and demolition. That's the only way you could have a simultaneous, uh, essentially simultaneous failure of that bottom structure happened in, in, in the time of a, of a free, uh, thin air, you know, uh, essentially thin air speed. So if technically you can get into the different connections, there were 400 connections of the floor slabs per floor, 400 high strength bolts. These are even higher than that special grade steel strength bolts. There were 400 of those connections had to fail on each floor. And not to mention the facade connections and the connections in the core, uh, it's like 40,000 connections just for the floor slabs alone, 40,000 that have to fail basically instantaneously <laughs> for that building. To, and, it has, and they all have to happen simultaneously on each floor so that the building doesn't tip or roll to one side or the other, which it didn't. It came straight down. So there was simultaneous destruction of that entire structural from top structure from top to bottom that um, gravity could not accomplish um, in the, you know, it would only be accomplished in the time of thin air uh, if the structure were taken out or if the top had been dropped like an asteroid from very high up and the energy of that acceleration and the velocity goes right through the structure like an asteroid. So <laughs> another reason the lecture here is called the man-made asteroids because we're really talking about you know, is this the next extinction event? I mean, are we going to actually believe uh, what the government has said here about this? And 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 is this asteroid effect going to be accepted as? Oh yeah, this can happen from gravity and office fires. Um, and the implications of again what it means when people say, oh, we have to go to war. We have to go protect ourselves, we have to spend more money on defense because, well, we did we learn the lessons of 9-11? It's always did we learn the lessons of 9-11. So, again, the simple arithmetic and, and that simple analysis of the speed of the collapse and the strength of those buildings 
uh, intuitively, and this can be proved by experiment, scale experiments, uh, physical experiments, and there is no argument against it that could be proven in any kind of experiment, only by mathematics that always have turned out to be wrong when you do the actual analysis and plug in the numbers to the uh, arguments which try to refute the dispositive nature of what really happened that day. Um, uh, in the end of the day, there can be no uh, reasonable human being that can reasonably disagree with the idea that, well, the, the structure was taken out. It wasn't, it wasn't uh, crushed uh, by the top. It was removed. And uh, how can you do that? Well, yeah, yeah, all right. If you want to crush it from the top, you better be dropping that thing from space. And if you're going to remove it, well, you better use explosives or some kind of explosive devices that, that can remove the structure. Now, so I'll kind of, yeah, stop there for a minute and let, yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I thank you very much for the elaborate uh, response. And um, I hate to sound uh, juvenile, but I am in regards to this one particular subject of 9-11. But I'm, I'm sure you've heard yeah. about the, uh, the counter response to uh, how the towers collapsed. And I'll, I'll just bring it up here and see what your response yeah. would be. One of the counter arguments would be that, well, the towers had collapsed because there was this huge gaping hole which took out a couple of numerous of the floors uh, due to the plane impact in the building. And what we saw was a pancake collapse. Would, would you disagree right. ambiently with that? And what would be your response to, to that point? Yeah, well, you know, when they, uh, the, pan the pancake people, by the way, that had been, that was initially posited by the American Society of Civil Engineers. And um, which surprised, you know, was, was surprising to me. And I, I don't, I do blame them for not doing their due diligence. But it could have also just been a reaction like, well, they had to figure out some way that it could have happened in that speed in the way that it did. Um, and so let's think about this pancaking idea. They didn't really think too hard, though, I would have to say, because you got basically 98 floors that have to pancake. And as all the pancakers admit, well, yeah, the floors came down. Now, they have very weak and almost non-existent uh, explanations for how then did it take out that exterior facade, which was, as I described, so strong, and how did it destroy the interior core at this pancake action, uh, which was the interior core was so strong. And they never have a very good answer for that. It's like wind, air pressure, and things like that. We're not even talking about the speed of the, the collapse. We're just talking about how could you get it to. American Society of Civil Engineers did a computer program which showed the pancake in the computer. And, uh, well, of course, what was shown was that the interior, the core was remained standing. This was on Frontline on PBS, you know, where they show the collapse of the towers. They show this pancaking floors. And when they show the computer model, it's got the core upright, bolt upright standing, like all the way to the top. I mean, not just a part of the core, the whole core. And the exterior facade in that building, too, is plenty strong enough that it was not going to be coming down you know if the floors are going to floor connections are going to break that exterior facade's not going to be breaking so easy and especially in that time frame and nobody has a good explanation they say things like wind pressure okay so now i'll tell you how many connections have to be broken 
separate to pancaking. And again, they have to be simultaneous because this is a pancake. It's not, you know, wobbling down. It is one floor smashing directly onto another, smashing directly onto another. So that would be 400 total connections. These trusses that connected the floor slabs to the exterior walls uh, structure and to the interior structure were uh, what they say was the weak part of the structure. I don't really agree with that, but anyway, let's say you're gonna break those truss connections. That's a bolt, it's a high strength bolt to the top of the truss, and then there was an, actually an elastic, it was very innovative. By the way, they won the best structural engineering uh, achievement of the year, 1970, for the tower's design. Um, the bottom core of that floor truss, it was concrete floor truss assemblies, was an elastic, a very high strength elastic rubber band, if you will, an elastic damper. This is to help keep the floors in the building calm in any kind of vibration from the wind. So you got to break. There's 200 of those high strength bolt connections on each floor. Perimeter around the outside and including on the inside elevator core, plus the 200 elastic rubber bands on the bottom, which are not going to just elastic rubber bands. What that means is that there's going to be not a brittle failure like we have witnessed. The thing came down in 10 and a half seconds. You had 100. 10 floors are basically 98 floors coming down um, again in just two seconds more than it to drop through thin air. That means each floor you're breaking 400 connections simultaneously, and it's got to be done instantaneously all the way down. So, you know, again, I, you, that's, you, you know, you could set up an experiment that could sh never show that. It could never show that there would be going to be 400 of those kind of strength connections breaking simultaneously, coming down on the next one, causing it to break, saying that saying that it accelerated, which is what they're trying to say, is that it accelerates because of this top, which doesn't make any sense with Newton's law of the physics. But anyway, just trying to break through those connections um, in that time frame, again, two seconds over 1,200 feet, 400 connections per floor, um, is not, it just is is ludicrous to even think it would even be close to that. If, if you were to really set up a pancake scenario that would actually work, something that size, you could figure out a weak enough connection to make that happen and simultaneously um, from gravity, it would be, we're talking in the 60 second to two minute range for it to come down 98 floors, not 10 and a half seconds. <laughs> so, and again, the main thing too, is they don't ever address, well, how did the core structure come down? How did the exterior structure get blown out? in pieces like it did it, it was bolted together with high strength knitted together uh high strength bolts four per column times 240 uh columns around the perimeter times four bolts per 240 what is that uh, 480 960 bolted connections breaking sequentially all the way down um you know it was every three floors that you had a bolted exterior facade section um <laughs> so it wasn't 960 connections per floor, it was every three floors because it was a solid beam. They have to be blown, that, those were blown apart, except for at the very bottom. And another thing that you see when you see the video evidence is, you know, there's very little, if any of that exterior strong part of the facade left. There was part of one corner of two and a small part of tower one uh, for about, I'd say it was 10 floors or 15 floors worth of ex exterior on the one corner left. Everything else was gone. The, you see the uh, core um, structure of steel waving in the wind 
after the building came down in 10, 10 and a half seconds, you see this core structure waving in the wind. About eight of those columns in the corner of that core structure on the north tower are waving in the wind, 20 seconds. And then suddenly from the bottom again, they come vertically down. They don't blow over in the wind or go, you know, they're swaying and then they just get out of balance and they come down, uh, you know, in an angular momentum type of way. They come straight down. <laughs> now that to me, my uh, expertise as well is in a wireless demolition or wi not demolition, but wireless switching and with radio frequencies. And I, my uh, theory, and this is purely theory, it doesn't have uh, anything to back it other than the visual evidence I just mentioned about that corner being 20 seconds late in coming down, but definitely being taken out with explosives because they took the base out, which is causing it to go straight vertically down and not over sideways. And that would be that um, the demolition uh, sequence was initiated from the Deutsche Bank building which would have been the farthest point away for that radio frequency signal, which is, you know, they can make them pretty strong, but they're not always 100% perfect, those radio frequency signals, uh, uh, detonators and switching. And sometimes you have to hit the button again. You have to send the signal again. And it may be because of that longest distance and because of the, you know, being blocked by the, the tower one that was there, um, Tower two was gone already, so it was out of the path. Uh, and that corner that's the furthest away from the Deutsche Bank building was the one that they had to hit the, the button twice, in my theory, in my idea, in my uh, imagination. But anyway, uh, I don't know if that addresses the question of the pancake for you. Sure. No, uh, um, that, that, was a good, <laughs> that was a fine answer. Um, actually, Richard Cox and myself had previously interviewed David Chandler. And... Yeah. Chandler, Chandler, Chandler hypothesized that um, much of the buildings, World Trade Center 1 and 2, had been outfitted both with explosives and thermite. Now, would that be yeah. a scenario that you agree with? Um, and also, uh, as a follow-up question, can you explain uh, to the audience how thermite works? Yeah. Um, I can do pretty well on, on the the thermite question, uh, but not, I'm not an expert on, uh, on it, but, um, well, it's a self, it's a reaction with sulfur and aluminum oxide for the two main components. And of course they're talking about nanothermite was probably used here too, uh, which is of course a tightly packed atomic version, which makes it more powerful. But basically what the thermite does when it gets ignited is it burns super hot. Now it does not explode. A lot of people say, well, thermite doesn't explode. And that's, True and it's not true. It, it's if it's a you know big enough volume, yeah, it's gonna that energy is gonna release in an explosive way. But what they do when they do demolitions and they're using thermite, is they'll draw they put the thermite in a in a lot in a ring around a column or the structural member, so that it basically burns like uh, like gunpowder in a path around the column, weakening it. And when it gets to the all the way around the column, at the end of it, it acts like a fuse. The thermite acts like a fuse as well. There can be a standard type of explosive, uh, um, one of the plastic explosives or the cordite type, traditional type of explosives attached to the end of that thermite fuse. Basically, the thermite acts like a fuse. It goes all the way around the column silently, so you don't have to have a big explosion like you do 
um, with uh, when you don't use the thermite, you got to have a real powerful explosion. They did have those in the basement of this building, but the thermite, if it's burning around silently at a high heat, it's going to compromise that entire beam. And then the final coup d'etat, if you call it, if you want to call it, is that final little explosive that it's fused for that pops the connection. It's at the end of the fuse after it's gone around the structural membrane and it will pop the connection. I don't think that was used so much on Tower 1. I think they softened it and the core was pulling, which got it to pull that top down. I think on Tower 2, though, those interior corners, uh, columns on the core, in the corner, they definitely used, uh, and you can see evidence on the NEMA, or I'm sorry, NIST videos that show on the floors where they would have done this uh, in that corner where the building began to tip over. Um, a man's blown, it looks like a, it's a man probably, is blown out of the window after a smoke is coming out of it. Um, so the, in other words, the glass of that window was compromised. You begin to have some high temperature fire going on. Uh, this is below where the plane impacted, just below. And then uh, suddenly a poof or a real major explosion and a guy gets blown out back first out of the window, like at high velocity. He's not falling out or he's not jumping, running and jumping or something. He was backwards facing with his back towards the window and he got pushed out the window by a major, uh, some explosive uh, condition there. Again, this is in the es uh, escalator, the, the um, sky lobby area. So there aren't any, there aren't any uh, natural gas or any type of explosives or or anything in the building uh, that could cause a fire to, you know, heat it up and cause it to explode that violently. It just, they don't have that in the building. It's part of the fire code codes. You're not going to have explosives or things that could become explosive in a fire in that building, especially in the location there where the escalators are. So, um, yeah, I think in that case, yeah, it was a thermite fuse and then it hit a pretty major, uh, popping, uh, conventional explosive on that core, that corner core column in World Trade Center 2 and a few of those core columns, uh, you know, causing that corner to tip first. Um, and of course, they weren't going to let the thing tip over and fall off like it would have done if it was really not being helped. Then they, they come with that core uh, at the bottom, at the base of the building to pull on the whole thing. To, and that's what pulled that part of the building back upright a bit before it started to come down. And it it had some explosives in the top there too, uh, in, the, in the elevator shaft because it didn't last. It wasn't intact um, for very long. Once the explosives got going, the top part got got it too, and it must have had some explosives in the core there. But the thermite, uh, the nano thermite could have been painted on. I'm not a super expert again on on all of those issues, but um, and it could be if it's painted on, it can do softening. It doesn't need to compromise the whole structure, it just needs to be consistently around the whole floor, painted on the, on the spandrels, which are the steel plates that join the columns together on each floor, just weakening, again, it's going to, high temperature is going to weaken that steel and make it half the strength or more, and lose more than half the strength of the thermite, it's really going to melt that stuff, and um, which could be why you've got that steel pouring out of the side of the building <laughs> uh, that's molten, really high temperature molten. Wait, is that, that, I, think, I think that came on, yeah. I'm sorry to interrupt, but I think that came on yeah, the right. South Tower video. 
where you could see that like, dripping. Yes, and um, I heard one debunking group call that, well, it was an, uh, some backup battery generators up there for the computers for the trading floor up above. And I worked with those a lot over in my career, and I've seen them actually when they do catch fire. And um, those batteries will melt, but when they melt, they melt very slowly. It's like a very slow, slow, it smokes a lot. Yeah, they'll smoke, but they do not get that white hot they don't they're not going to be if you remember that south tower had sunlight on that portion um where that molten stuff was coming out of the building there was sun hitting that and it's still even with the sunlight on it it's still glowing red hot so it's not as if you know if you're looking at those batteries melting or anything melting at a normal temperature it's not going to glow in bright sunlight it's got to be a really high temperature and some people think it was molten aluminum from the plane um I'm not sure how that could happen again because the jet fuel doesn't burn that that kind of temperature to get that kind of heat to to cause a molten reaction of that type. And again, batteries they don't get that hot when they melt. Um, they're not going to be glowing. I saw mine when they were melting. They didn't glow. They smoked like really badly and they melted. <laughs> but um, anyway, yes, it was Tower Two that I saw that they had the molten. And I think there might have been one, too, that showed some coming out of Tower 1. But it's not the one that is the most popular video that I've seen, right. the one that you really see. Yeah, yeah just sticking with yeah. the topic of, like, demolition. I'm sure you're familiar with yeah. uh, the famous video of a Danish demolition expert named Danny Joenko. Um, yeah, yeah. He's confronted with video and photos of World Trade Center 1 and 2. He disagrees yeah. that both towers collapsed due to controlled demolition, yet he was non-committed in how World Trade Center 7 fell, stating that rigging yeah. World Trade Center 7 would have been very hard under the obvious tumultuous conditions. Where in, right. where in Joenko's assessments do you uh, disagree and agree in regards to World Trade Center 1, 2, and 7? Well, you know, honestly, I've only seen the clip about him doing the World Trade Center 7 portion. Right. Um, that clip is where he says it's obviously exposed controlled demolition so um i'm not so familiar with the full his full length testimony there but you say he does oh, think yeah, that, well let, let yeah. me just give you a short i'll tell you right because i've seen yeah. the video. he says that world trade center one and two were obvious were obviously from the top down instead of where you see with demolitions it's from the bottom and that's that oh, was yeah. his explanation for it right okay well i if that's what he said i'd the only thing that I would say about that is we do have the evidence, um, and I might add, the only government agency that has been uh, um, uh, forthright and uh, followed their duty and has been responsible in divulging the evidence they have has been the USGS, United States Geological Survey. All the other agencies uh, have given false accounts or backed up on their accounts or hidden their accounts from you know FEMA to FAA to NIST to everybody else, but the National Geographic Survey has been very forthcoming with all their evidence, and it's been pointing in you know the direction of the controlled demolition, and that is that you know you had these deep, deep underground explosions in both towers before the plane hit, uh, which is there's no way that's again that's a dispositive. The USGS is the most accurate accurate timing of explosives uh, explosions or tremors or earthquakes in the uh, earth of any 
anybody on the planet, and that's their job because they're supposed to tell you when a tsunami is coming, if it's an earthquake, or if it is a terrorist bomb, they're going to pinpoint the time that it happened and how big it was. Or if it was an atomic bomb explosion from some country, they're going to be able to tell you exactly what time it occurred and how big it was. And they were able to do that with these two explosions in World Trade Center 1 and 2, showing that they were 13, 15 seconds, respectively, 13 or 15, respectively, to before the planes hit, um, that these big explosions in the basement occurred. And then they do register the small plane impact uh, at the time that they say the plane, well, that the planes did hit. They do register that, but it's it's much weaker and it's not that uh, low internal earth, uh, low, I can't remember the wave, S wave uh, type of a, uh, frequency that's set off by an underground explosion. Those happen 13 seconds before the plane, the higher frequency uh, registration that they did come at the time they said, but it, um, so they were, they did register the planes hitting, but they also registered these much stronger uh, low level explosions in the, in the earth, which would be the basement part of the buildings. So what that means is it really was going to be taken out the core in the base. Um, I'm supposing they maybe was hope, were hoping that the towers might sway when the planes hit. Um, of course, we know the towers just swallowed the planes right up. You know, they just, the engineers weren't even thinking about planes being able to take this going down. They were worried about some fire damage, but not, nothing like, uh, you know, coming all the way to the ground and powder. So, um, you know, uh, the core, you had to take out the core, just like in World Trade Center 7, uh, not just in one spot across the bottom. You have to take out a whole full length of the column, say two or three floors high. Um, before the building's going to start pulling, before that top structure is going to have no support under it, you've got you can't just compromise the column in one place. You've got to compromise it at a, at a bottom place and a little bit higher up in the basement. So I, you do see the antenna, World Trade Center one, beginning to come just a tad before the rest of the top starts to fall, which would indicate because the hat truss is supported there mainly by the uh, core column structure that that core interior structure was moving first before the exterior part. And so I don't know if Duenko saw that, um, but that implies the classic kind of demolition where the interior is pulling. And um, also on World, the World Trade Center 2, the first tower that collapsed, again, you see that top portion of the building really kicking over pretty far to the one corner out of balance like it would do if gravity were gonna be causing something to collapse. But then it gets pulled almost back upright again before it disappears, which again, it would be the, the connections of the, that interior core structure falling from the basement and pulling down on the whole thing. And then of course you start the sequential explosions in the core to come down all the way. But uh, yeah, I'm just not sure Twanko saw those uh, details or knew about the USGS data, which showed the big explosions occurring in the basement. Right. No, I don't think no, he was. Priv I don't think he was privy yeah. to that information at all. In fact, um, yeah. I, I think regarding uh, World Trade Center Seven, he initially said um, that this was a classic uh, case of controlled demolition, and then he was told that that was World Trade Center Seven, and it was also part of World, uh, September 11th attacks. And he paused and said, um, "Well, I, I wouldn't say it wasn't, but I said it would have been pretty hard to do." 
and he showed right. uh, the interviewer where in the heart of the uh, the um, the uh, I want to say in the middle area of the I don't know which which uh, area needed to be copied. Yeah. He showed he said it was a heart within World Trade Center. So yeah, he said it just would have been hard to yeah. do, and not not impossible. And, in that uh, time frame, you mean? Right. In the day, yeah. Uh, now, in, yeah. In, just regard to World Trade Center Seven, if I may. Um, yeah. It, it just there sure. is a there is a main point of contention with those of the truth movement that no steel frame structure had ever collapsed due to office fires. Now, there right. was structural damage to the back of World Trade Center 7, and it was a large vertical right. gash from the 41st floor to the 24th floor. This is, this right. is generally not addressed uh, in regards to the collapse, but what are your thoughts regarding to the damage of World Trade Center, and would it have been a factor in the collapse of World Trade Center 7? If not, why not? Yeah, I, I think uh, the gash that I've seen there um, – even if it occurred over a few floors, was not compromising the columns, but was compromising maybe some beams, you know, the horizontal beams. And um, if it had compromised a column, it may have been one or two columns. So there were, I think, again, it was 50, or no, it's 80 some, 87 columns total in World Trade Center 7, I think. Um, so again, you're losing what percentage of the building? You're losing uh, if let's say a couple of columns did get compromised, um, it's got to be five percent of this whole structure. Um, again, now these steel buildings are made to resist wind loads and all these earthquake loads and different things, so they're oversized, and um, to the point where you would have to be losing before anything's going to move. As Richard Gage has said before, before anything's going to move in that building, you got to start to lose at least 50% of the structure. Um, and that damage you're referring to from the falling uh, or the blowing out of the exterior walls of the World Trade Center One um, that hit it, uh, even if it had gone from the top all the way to the bottom, it would have been going through beams, which are just holding, you know, that portion of the building like a zipper together, but they're not going to cause the whole vertical columns to come down. Again, maybe you get, maybe it took out a couple columns on the way down too. And so there were unsupported lengths of columns. I don't know if that was the case or not, but again, you're going to have to take out 50% of those unsupported length columns before anything's going to even move in a wind. You know, it's, that's how oversized the things are. So, um, you know, again, uh, like, and that's the same with World Trade Center 1 and 2, those exterior facades. The planes went in, they got 40 other columns out of the 60. There's 100, and, I'm sorry, 240 on each floor. For each four sides, you got 60 each side. And that plane goes in, takes out like 40 of the columns or two-thirds of the one facade. The other part of the building is going to hold it. It's five times stronger than what it needs to be just for, and if it's five times if they designed it five times weaker, it's still going to stand. It's just not going to put up with too much before it starts to fall over, you know. But again, steel, this is another important critical point about the whole issue, is that steel does not fail in a brittle way, like unless it's being demolished. If a fire melts it, it can be pretty quick if it's really going to be a hot fire, 2,000 degrees Fahrenheit, which you don't have in, in, a, in anything that's not uh, going to be an incendiary type fire. Any kind of fuel oil, like jet fuel or anything, you're not going to burn at that temperature. 
the steel will never, if it gets weak, 50% weaker because of a, a, a lower temperature fire, it's not going to fail in that instantaneous brittle way that we witnessed on all three buildings on 9-11. It's brittle. Brittle, and when I say that, again, it's like, like instantaneously, like concrete. When it fails, it snaps. And it's like, wow, okay, <laughs> that snaps. Now, steel, when, if you've ever seen it fail, in either compression or tension, they pull it apart, it starts to get thinner and thinner and thinner. You see it, like turning into like, it looks like taffy. And then finally it'll snap a little bit at the end when it finally reaches its uh, yield limit. And um, so in other words, a steel structure from gravity collapsing, it's gotta be heavily compromised. And if it does come down, it's gonna twist around. It's gonna be this kind of ballerina kind of dance as it goes down. It's not gonna be, coming straight down horizontally at free fall speed. You've, you're taking that structure away if it's steel and it's coming down in that way. And so I think that's, a, that's one of my comments when I joined AE 911 Truth is that, you know, it couldn't have failed in such a brittle manner. Um, it's steel. Steel does not instantaneously fail under any conditions. It, it just, if it gets hot enough, it's going to melt. It could be pretty fast, but it's not going to be that instantaneous that we witnessed on all three buildings. Ross, why hasn't architects and engineers gotten more support from the other engineering architects groups like, uh, for example, the American Institute of Architects, which has uh, approximately 5,000 members, or the National Society of Professional Engineers, which has over 500 local chapters in the United States. Why do you, why do you think they haven't? Gotten the support. Well, well, because we're, I mean, the real, you've really touched on the real point here, and that is that uh, 9 11 was a crime of finance above all things. I mean, mm. no matter what any elites that planned it or conceived of it were thinking, the bulk of the people that had to put this thing together were doing it and rationalizing, rationalizing it from the sense that it was going to save the entire economic system, the US dollar, is what this event was about. Mm. And all those agencies you just talked about are extremely, uh, you know, those AIA and um, American Society of Civil Engineers, my dad was one of them. They get, and half of their income comes from the defense industry. And, and uh, so you're going to, if you're going to go against it, not only is it the defense industry, but you're going against the whole system. And the whole system has been telling them from all their, channels that they tell them, which is the government, the media, they've been telling AIA and everybody, well, this is, you know, it wasn't explosives. It wasn't, it, because they can't, can't be, because that would imply that there was some level of sophistication here that was going on. It was much bigger than terrorism or Al-Qaeda or somebody in a cave thousands of miles away, it was, or even operatives, you know, that were uh, part of an uh, Islamic terrorist group. To be able to do that, people wouldn't believe. So you had to have help from the higher, high levels, which implies that the system is at fault, which implies that their uh, bread and butter, if they go against it, you know, you're going to, you're going to have problems. And I'm sure people like um, the structural engineers, the skilling and Leslie Robertson, you know, was the guy that was on television talking with crocodile tears, you know, typical CIA fashion where you're, you know, uh, overacting about how he didn't know that the, he just didn't think that the planes could actually cause that to take the tower down. It was a 707 
We designed for it, by the way, 707 is about the same in mass as a 767 for the day. They were much heavier planes with a lot more fuel because they were not efficiently designed. 767, 707, that's the same thing from an engineer standpoint in terms of impact. He's crying there on, on, on television. His partner, who did really designed the tower, Skilling died six years before the towers were blown up, so he never knew anything about this. But, you know, you get approached. If, if you're at that level, I'm sure these guys get approached by their people, give them their jobs and say, you know, uh, you, you're either going to do, you can do really well or you can have problems. You know, and, these, and people in these engineering firms, believe me, they work a lot with the defense industry and they have to look the other way on a lot of things. I mean, my father did work for these uh, Fort Polk and Fort Benning, and these are all these terrorist training air bases, and he master planned for, for these bases. He died before uh, died before I got to ask him about it, uh, before I learned about all the, what was going on in these bases that we used to work for. And I wonder if, how much my father knew about, you know, what was going on in those Air Force bases, and what was he actually designing? I you know, there's a point where you just kind of get along to go along and you don't ask questions and you're going to get your money and you know it's bad news. You've got, you're either working with the mafia or you're working with the military industrial complex or you're working with the CIA or you're working with the FBI or you're working with the U.S. government military industrial complex and they, or they're all together on some project and you just don't ask questions if you get that job. You start asking questions and you start losing work. The other contractors get you, they beat you to get those jobs. And um, so the AIAs, you know, and that's why I put my, take my hat off, hat off to the NSGS, National uh, uh, Geological Survey, for actually holding, you know, I guess they're not going to lose their funding one way or another. People, they want to know where these bombs are going off or where earthquakes are going off. So the USGS is not going to lose its funding. So they're going to just go ahead and be honest, right? <laughs> or, you know, they're not going to say, well, have to reinvent the USGS. But the AIA, you know, that's an official organization. You go against that, um, and you're going to be you're severely undercutting the economy, which is really what this whole thing is all about. Just, just, <laughs> right, just to play devil's advocate here, Ross. Um, if if yeah. you're like, with, especially with these large um, engineering and architectural organizations, um, and I think yeah. you might be knowing where I'm going with this. You're asking a lot of people yeah. within the top office positions to remain mum in regards to these like numerous uh, intelligence agencies and Pentagon officials or defense officials to keep quiet. Um, may, they, they may not have known about the attacks, but in right. order to, to hide the fact that the towers collapsed uh, other than what NIST would say, for example, you're asking for a lot of people to remain mum. Right. Um, well, that that's right. And um, but they're used to doing that. I mean, as I said, this is not 9-11 is the holy grail. It is the really reason we should care. Again, I'll come back to that is because it's the easiest one to show just how 100 percent corrupt the system is. It's not that the system has got some corrupt elements. I mean, it, it might have been the case in the 50s and, the, you know, pre-JFK where the criminal elements were not 100 percent in control of not just the government, but the entire economy from the money printing standpoint and from the banking standpoint and from therefore the entire standpoint is a 100% corrupt system. So that you're used to playing this game if you get up to that level in any of these organizations. 
you rise to that level because you're willing to accept this I I keeping the blindfold on your eyes, not speaking up. It's a sad thing when it comes to the AIA because it really is their professional duty to to expose this kind of thing. How do buildings really work? How do they really collapse? Life safety is a big major part of what the AIA exists for, or the National, uh, the American Society of Civil Engineers. They're supposed to tell you what life safety, how to prevent uh, buildings from killing people. And of course, they're willing to look the other way when the money's waved in front of them. So um, I think they've been doing, I think they were doing that for years. Uh, and I just think it worked up to this thing where this was a ma- this was the major, major big, blatant um, example of just how evil they really are. And uh, I suppose, you know, not, it's not either true that none of them are speaking out. It's just that you won't hear about the ones, the ones that are speaking out, you won't really hear about them. I mean, I'm sure Richard Gage has gone through a lot just to get to where he's been now um, in terms of getting any exposure at all. And so if you start blowing the whistle in your office or anywhere else, uh, again, a lot of military defense contracts, I'll point to Boeing as well. I mean, one of my major suspicious elements I noticed after 9-11 with Boeing, and I didn't put it together until a couple of years ago, was that uh, you know Boeing was a manufacturer of what is called the KC-46, which is an air air refueling tanker for the uh, U.S. military. And they just ordered them. I'm sorry, KC-46. I said that wrong. KC-46. And that's an air refueling tanker. It's the new one that's replacing all the old refuelers. And it just got put online this last year. However, the KC-46 is a Boeing 767. Um, basically modified. It's got a stronger belly because it's full of heavy fuel, not passengers, but fuel. And it's got a reinforced belly because of that extra weight. And it's got bigger engines because it's heavier. It's got 747 engines, not 767 engines. And other than that, it looks like it's just a 767 other than the slightly larger belly and some other little antenna modifications, it looks like it's a 767, dark gray. Now that was, that contract for those KC-46s, Boeing just got last year. Well, that plane was out and in development and had a prototype available before September 11th, just before, in, in 2001. And shortly after September 11th, two months after, I remember because I was still in shock and the economy was still like, who knows what's going to happen. And um, I, I read this in the New York Times. Boeing loses contract for military tanker fleet uh, to, the, to Airbus. <laughs> yeah. So I'm thinking to myself, you know, this is very strange. September 11 just happens. Everybody's trying to be patriotic and rally around the flag and give everybody the business to the American company. Here's a, a defense contract, a big one that normally would go to Boeing anyway. And the, and the, and the Senate and Congress are saying, oh, absolutely not. no, we're, we're going to give it to Airbus. And this is when Airbus is really just trying to survive. So, I mean, they could, Airbus would have been maybe not going to survive or whatever. Um, and I thought, well, that is really, really strange to me that Boeing doesn't get this contract right after September 11th. Well, lo and behold, years later, you see all this evidence about how there were the two engines they found one of them on Murray Street, which was from the second plane. And, and it turns out from the photographic evidence 
It's a 747 engine. Okay. It's not an engine that's on a United 767. It's on a 747. That engine is supposed to be. Okay. I put that together. Okay. So the KC 46 fuel tanker has got a 747 engine on it. And the thing is dark gray in most of the videos. You see dark gray and maybe they even got around to painting a United symbol on it. But it looks pretty much like it's an unpainted dark gray plane. And it's got that shot of the belly. They have various shots of the belly showing that those reinforcement ribs that you'll see under the K-46 today if you look it up online. You'll see that bulge in the belly. Same exact bulge you see in the photos. 9-11 plane. And you have this fireball that's exponentially larger than the one that hit the first tower. Exponentially larger. So to me, yeah, Boeing probably got upset that their prototype got used in a way that they didn't like or they couldn't get it back. It's like, well, we didn't get the job. Give us our prototype back. Or before they didn't get the job, they probably said, well, so what happened to our prototype we gave you? <laughs> and the government probably said, well, you know, we just, it's ours. Don't worry about it. And they said, eh, we think you used it on 9-11. Somebody might have spoken up and said that in Boeing somewhere at some level. Well, guess what the government does to you then? You say, okay, you think so? Well, guess what? You know, go ahead and say that if you think. We're not going to give you any press, but you're also going to lose the job. You lost the contract for, you know, however many billion dollars worth of tank, fuel retanking we've got in the future. Now, and also it's going to Airbus, a European company. Why are you going to trust a European company with our refueling planes? <laughs> you know, it's kind of not a very good strategic decision, if you ask me, if you're really worried about security. But they're not worried about security from you know, other militaries. There's, and, and Boeing, you know, has learned its lesson, right? They, they're getting plenty of defense contract work. But I think somebody there tried to blow the whistle. And I think at the AIA, if they did the same thing, because again, the AIA, if they were to do their responsibility, it'd be pretty hard to ignore. You know, they would really know how buildings are built. And that's their job, is to tell us how buildings fail along with NIST and along with American Society of Civil Engineers. And they have, you know, if they were to come forward, it would be a real problem for the official story. So I think they just were, I think they're bought and paid for. In regards to any future independent inquiries, if I could touch on the subject with you. Now we've, yeah. had, we've, we've had two congressional inquiries regarding intelligence matters. Um, that was the 9-11 Commission and the Joint House Inquiry. In regards right. to building design, you've had NIST and you had FEMA, FEMA along, with, yeah, uh, right. along with the American Society of Civil Engineers. Now, my question right. for you would be, what do you think needs to be done in order to have another investigation into the events of September 11th? And who do you believe needs to organize this inquiry? Well, I think that's an excellent question. And, um, you know, I, I really like the Lawyers Committee for their work. Um, and I think it, it's important their work from the perspective that we really need to just put another nail on the coffin that proves how illegitimate uh, the U.S. government's behavior and U.S. system and even down to the U.S. citizens' behavior has been uh, regarding 9-11 put that final nail in the coffin. We've tried every recourse through the legal system in the United States of America and other ways 
the professional uh, uh, organizations within the United States. You've tried every recourse to get to the truth, and you, you, you know, you're likely not going to be successful with the Lawyers Committee, even at that final grand jury effort. I'm glad for history, for posterity, they did that, which proved that we didn't just say they were illegitimate. We proved it by the fact that they ignored our legitimate lawsuits. So where do you go from there? Well, you got to go like they did what they've done with uh, many of these criminals. The Spanish uh, Macron, or not Macron, he's a French prime minister right now, but the Spanish leadership um, in the 1990s and in Duarte and in, and in Argentina, um, all those corrupt leaders were eventually brought to task, not by their own governments or their own political system or their own uh, legal systems. They were brought to task by their by foreign uh, judicial systems. Uh, in the case of Spain, it was Argentina that invested, investigated. In, the, in, the, in Chile, Pinochet was uh, also an international body that brought criminal case. And uh, you asked for extradition. And if the government refuses the extradition, you eventually find somebody that they will extradite and convict them of something, which is, a, it's nothing else is a symbol to the people that, yeah, you did have this kind of criminality going on in your government. They're being, uh, we are investigating it and you get various degrees of, of justice um, through the international, another party or a third party country coming in. So I've been thinking, well, what country might bring a lawsuit against these people and ask for extradition? Uh, maybe Canada, you know, somebody who's not too far out, but that has a vested interest in the truth, which is really every country, but pretty much every country has also got a pretty corrupt system going on. So you've got to try to figure out if there's a country whose legal system um, could bring a lawsuit like this. There are international legal organizations, the International Criminal Court um, can bring a lawsuit and ask for extradition. There's a thing called the, uh, N, let me just think of it, ITNJ, International Tribunal for Natural Justice, which is a body that's a self-anointed body of judges and lawyers uh, internationally from all countries, many countries around the world, that has formed a group, a judiciary body that um, has created its own constitution and its own legal framework and considers itself uh, as an independent jurisdiction of the world. It is a world independent jurisdiction body that is, it considers itself valid in all just jurisdictions because it's charged with cases of, of um, uh, humanity, of crimes against humanity. It only takes on the serious cases. Um, and therefore it has claimed that it has the right in charges of um, uh, Human, uh, human trafficking, various types of high crimes and felonies, uh, crimes against humanity, war crimes, that it has the right to prosecute. And it is doing this in various types of crimes uh, throughout the world, in Australia and, and various places. So I think it may be that the Lawyers Committee and, and Americans and we are going to have to rely on some kind of foreign body to come in and try and get attention. First of all, I mean, it doesn't necessarily mean you got to get a guy in the docket and, you know, sentence him to some kind of punishment. It, it means that you need to get media attention more than anything, because then the people really have no excuse for looking the other way or 
not understanding this dispositive evidence that we have that this obvious uh, uh, egregious violation of of the legal system and of, of logic and of abdication of the responsibility of government that is like 9-11, is 9-11 and was also with the Kennedy assassination. The Kennedy assassination, not, not quite as obvious, but almost in terms of the uh, um, falsehood that happened in there. So I think it might be an international criminal uh, court that has to come and file a suit and get some attention here as the next step. We're coming at 9-11 in two different uh, areas. You're, you're dealing basically with just the physics and I'm dealing with the geopolitical. And in my experience, when I used to uh, roam the forums of Facebook and uh, other uh, viral media networks, I have become inundated with far fringe conspiracy theories. Now, my question for you would be, do you feel, um, well, is this a fear of yours that an organization like architects and engineers could be compromised by those who peddle like far fringe conspiracy theories, for example, like nuclear demolition or CGI and holograms, in, and, and then compromise their work? Would, would, is this something that you're... Um, that you fear that could happen or, or is happening? Or oh, it, oh, it happens on a daily basis. I mean, that happens on a daily basis. I mean, the CIA has been with Mockingbird and, and um, many uh, efforts in the Kennedy assassination and on a daily basis. They peddle truth and lies. They hire people and pay money to magazines and journals and organizations to put these alternative conspiracy theories out there, flat earth. They fund these people. These are not just crazies, all of them. They're coming out of the woodwork. I'm, I've got this crazy conspiracy theory. A lot of them are very highly educated to pump these theories, as you know, as you say, you've been familiar with some of these, many of these theories. They're coming out of educated quarters, some of them. And that's because they're, they've, a lot of educated quarters are compromised by the CIA, again, with money. And so, I, yeah, I, I, it happens on a daily basis and it's part of the fight. Yeah, you know, they mix truth and lies um, uh, in order to come around, you know, Oliver Stone. I don't have a lot of respect for his movies because he basically comes, oh yeah, here's this, it wasn't quite the way the government said, but it was like this. And that, like this, is like a, throws some of the people under the bus, but doesn't really get to the core of the issue and uh, really get to the core truth. And it, in other words, it distracts from the core truth. Um, and, and, you know, I'm sure 9-11, at some point in the future, it could be very possible that they'll throw, say, the Bush family under the bus and say, well, you know, yeah, it was a demolition, but it was the Bush family that did it. And they kind of had very powerful connections in the CIA and the government. And they hired their own private people and they were the one. And then maybe they hired some people in Israel and they did it. And nobody else really in the government knew. They planned it themselves. You know. They, so that's, but that's not really the truth. You know, it had to be, it was much bigger than just the Bush family that did 9-11. But they would, sometimes it's in their best interest to distract from the issue, to get focus away from the big broad picture um, and get it on to some other little guy 
or get it onto some other conspiracy theory or discredit some other um, discredit the truth by um, muddying the waters. I mean, these are all there's a huge budgets in the in the. I'm sure that there are huge budgets in the U.S. government where people are paid very competent people are paid to do just that to muddy water to muddy the truth. And an opening statement I made about lies equals war equals death. I mean, they're peddling a system that that is about that. And so you have to, uh, you go ahead and use that money. It's part of that, uh, you have that power to create and you, um, you hide the truth as best you can. One of those ways is like 9-11 is this opening the can of worms of conspiracy theories, you know, and, and, and then they can't put the top back on it. You know, and then, of course, they have funded some of them, I think. Many of them, I'm sure, have been funded by the CIA, the alternative conspiracy theories to discredit. I think Flat Earth is a classic case of, of CIA operation. And um, so, you know, they're going to try to couch 9-11 for now as a conspiracy theory. and But it's not really going to hold up too much because, as I said, you don't need a scientific education to understand that something else went on and um and eventually i think they're gonna have to like i could go into another whole topic but i think we might be running out of time just in terms of where we go from here in terms of the real future <laughs> well, well, the I mean, price is right <laughs> anyway right no well I'm, we're coming up on an hour 30 but if you want i you know i, I do yeah. would like to touch a little bit on the geopolitics i Myself, okay. myself, and Richard for for a while have always explained that there was a thing. I've always said that what came after nine eleven, what birthed after nine eleven, was far infinitely worse than what happened on the day itself. I mean, we saw uh, the invasion of Afghanistan. We saw the invasion of Iraq, where a million people. I think it's now approximately a million point three are dead. Um, in regards to Afghanistan, I believe it's now 25,000 that are dead. It's also the longest, right. um, the longest war in human history, regarding now 18 years. Right. And we've seen the Patriot Act, the National Defense Authorization Act, the warrantless wiretapping of Americans, and so on and so on, it seems. And that we've right. seen the bloated, budget, the bloated budgets of the Pentagon, the National Security Agency, uh, Numerous agencies like the TSA have been born, which have shown to be proven that it's no different than the security agencies like Argenbright Security, uh, which was the main security for Newark and um, uh, Logan Air, uh, Dulles Airports. And right. you've seen numerous organizations and numerous uh, instances of uh, invasions and wars. And it seems that in the future, now, this will go on for the rest of human history. Um, are you a, are you a, more of an optimist in this area? And what do you think is going to happen in the course of the future regarding the ripple effects of 9-11? Uh, that's a great question because that was the last part of what I wanted to talk about here. Um, and um, First of all, I don't consider, I don't like that term people use it. They always say, well, I'm an optimist, you're a pessimist, or you're a, you know, mm. you're a realist. I, because I kind of think that implies a certain amount of arrogance, because really, there's so much out there that can be considered positive, and so much out there that is horribly negative, to, and then to also be able to 
I have the crystal ball to say, oh, I, I'm optimistic that it's going to go this way or that way, or I'm pessimistic that it's going to go this way or that way. I don't think the individuals really have enough of real um, uh, perception of just the chaotic nature of the universe to be able to say, well, I'm optimistic or pessimistic. That said, I'll give you some scenarios. I'm, I've got three scenarios, I call it, that are, I think, probable. Um, uh, and I call it like it's like the game show, The Price is Right. And, um, you know, remember how the, it was an entertaining game show for the masses that didn't have anything else to do that during the day, and they were entertained, and they got to get, they won things from the economy by picking door number one, door number two, or door number three. So I think we kind of have as a choice as a society, we're going to be faced soon based on the irresponsibility that we're talking about, the criminality. Um, of the system that you just described in terms of the aftermath of the false flag event called 9-11, what it's been used for. Um, we, we've got this illegitimate system that is going to be brought, it being brought to its knees, um, both environmentally and financially. Um, and what will the end game be? Is what I think what your question is. So you've got three options I'm seeing. Door number one would be the uh, depressing option. I give these options about equal weight in terms of their probability of success or realization. And again, I don't, so I'm not an optimist or pessimist and I, I just kind of thinking it might be equal weighted and that's just a very rough um, idea because I, you know, again, we're not really in control of a lot of the very dangerous things that are, are happening right now. People are not in control of, we could be, but we're, or not. So I think door number one could be the final, we just keep going on with these wars in this same uh, uh, scenarios until we pretty much forced ourselves into some real serious genocide situations where we really are talking about wiping out large populations on the, on the earth um, in violently in order to try to secure resources and secure um, sustainability. <laughs> um, some way on the planet that we're, you know, not helping it to be sustainable. Um, but they're going to kind of push this uh, can down the road, kick this can down the road, put the accelerator on the gas of this car that's headed towards the cliff, and then get to the point where they either have, the elites have so much contempt um, that they just blow the whole planet apart, or they create so many wars that they um, basically destroy humanity. That could be door number one. Uh, door number two is the mo maybe more probable, at least in terms of what they think they want to achieve. And that would go along the lines of this, you know, Agenda 21, Agenda 31 in the UN, uh, which is where, you know, the oil oligarchs are the ones who have hired in the past all these environmentalists that are now going to the UN talking about how we have to have these Agenda 21 and these in the climate change treaties where, you know, if it doesn't occur like the way uh, we want it, or if it doesn't come down, this greenhouse gas emissions or these destruction of the planet, burning of the forest, we're going to have to take over these indigenous lands and uh, manage them, you know, like a one world, new world order type of a situation where it's a one world government that actually seizes land from there, blaming it on indigenous peoples don't know how to manage their resources. We're going to seize that land in order to protect the planet. 
you're going to have some wars that are going to end up being horrible and we want and we want to end them so they're going to be ended by this new world order who's going to come over take over the entire planet parts of the planet that are critical for survival um indigenous people and peoples will be corralled up and taken off those lands um i think you will see a push then for the end of war this is again where you kind of got these uh partial truths going on where you where you say, yeah okay we don't we can't have any more war. We know that's not going to work, but we've taken over the planet. We can take over these lands that we want to take over. And, um, but basically the history is not going to be too greatly rewritten. In other words, 9-11 truth might come down to, as I said, well, they throw the bushes under the bus or something. But it's not going to be exposing the whole system being behind it. It's going to be some limited form of all these wars. Histories are going to be remain intact about how wars have gotten started uh, in the past which is largely false, most of the history, and that will remain. And we will have this control, it's like a uh, fascist welfare state, which is what I call socialism, and or the future of socialism will be a fascist welfare state, which is I think what we have now, but it'll be much more in your face. Um, AI could be a big part of that. Um, and where a few elites or a few people uh, attempt to control a majority of the planet and its resources and uh, keep the people basically in check like they do now, but on a much more aggressive level. And that would be, I think, a shame, of course. I don't think that we will do, go very much further into the future, even with that kind of a, of a system, worldwide system. Um, but then door number three I, is what I hope to have happen, which would be... Um, a system where the governments really finally realize that they uh, they need to let go of the bone completely. It's just their system has not worked. It's been it's been based on lies and that whole other equation I started out with at the beginning. We want to convert it to the equation people humans and humanity wants, which is a truth and trust based economy and system, and that therefore by protects the environment. Um, rather than destroying people and the environment, that they let go of the bone, basically, and say, okay, we, we don't, we can't control, we've tried to control it, we, we failed, um, we'll blame you people, get, get a good portion of the blame and deserve it, but, you know, we're going to leave it up to you now. And that would, to me, would be, the signal for that would be, they say, okay, so what our, our symbol and our uh, gesture in that regard that we mean business is we're, Converting the NSA, the National Security Administration, into the largest, the world's largest open source news um, media access uh, server for the entire world. It's no longer going to be a surveillance operation. It's going to be a news, free and open news providing platform. We're doing that to prove that we mean business, that we want to give the people back their power. Um, because you won't then die of uh, boredom and or the hard work that it's going to require is people will then be forced to in this coming future. I think we're going to be forced in any of these scenarios of survival to go back first to nature and out of the cities. We're going to have to have a quite a bit of an exodus out of the cities. I don't believe we're ready for artificial intelligence, and I don't believe we've uh, managed our urban landscapes at all uh, either well. So 
in that regard, I'll mention, you know, it's a shame that World Trade Center two hours one and two would have been the largest and most successful and largest uh, vertical gardens the world has ever known or would have ever known. And that would have been an easy conversion to make them into vertical gardens. It's something that we need to do in order to revitalize the urban landscape. All these empty apartments, all this empty development, and all these um, warehousing of buildings in the cities, those need to become self-sustaining food environments as well as the envir urban environment for people. We've got to stop having these big uh, corporate farming, large agricultural farming um, operations or communist farming operations. We need to again be able to prov provide the food where the people are locally. Um, that will be another gesture that people will have to go out of the cities for a while to survive and learn how to work with nature again, and learn how to be in nature again. They don't want to die of boredom. We have some good uh, things technology has done. So this NSA news media, internet, free internet will keep people you know, motivated to go back into nature and do the hard work that's needed to do there to, to restore society and restore uh, respect for the planet. And uh, then eventually we come back into the cities uh, in a way that we, and we can eventually you know, put a freeze on AI development for now. And we can eventually go back to where we were, hopefully, if they give up the bone and, in a nonviolent way and not destroy the infrastructure they have built, most of it, which is malinvestment and poor, poorly conceived infrastructure. But just don't blow it all up. <laughs> And create more of a, a, a environmental crisis. Um, give it, hand it over to the people. Have there be no governments? Really, I'm talking about anarchism, like the kind of uh, um, Samuel Konkin. I don't know if you know Konkin from the 1960s, who was in the, in the original um, developer of libertarianism, the new New Libertarian Manifesto, or the Libertarian Manifesto. He wrote, and that was not about the Libertarian Party as it is today. That was, he was again compromised, not himself personally, I don't think, but the, the movement was compromised by money by the Koch family, principally, to turn it into a political party. But libertarian, libertarianism initially was not about politics in any way. It was about anarchy or non, no politics, non coercion, and not the socialist type of anarchy we have seen in the past, but a libertarian individual based type um, where again so we'll move out as individuals across the land reclaim the land reclaim our, our ability to understand how to take care of ourselves through nature directly rather than third parties or rather through big brother trying to fund us or take care of us or be a socialist or communist provider um, and then we'll come back into the city We'll rebuild the towers, uh, the original World Trade Center towers as vertical gardens. We'll have a lot of these buildings that are empty right now, alternating floors. One floor is an apartment floor of rented units. The floor above it is the, the uh, vertical garden farm for that, that, that group of apartments. And really take, again, more responsibility individually for providing our food in a healthy way, uh, in a sane way for the planet. And that will certainly mean that we don't have any more wars. <laughs> Hopefully we can evolve to that point. So that's, that's where my would, my hope would be, would be that type of a 
door number three. <laughs> well, I, I really enjoyed that third scenario description. And I think I have to agree with you in regards to having, if we're going to have any type of uh, cohesive future for the betterment of humanity, there is going to, we're going to need drastic changes in regards to how the world is run and governed. And I think I, I'm a little bit of a, I would, I would say I'm, I'm a, definitely I'm a pessimist in regards to the future, but um, I, I agree with you. I think there needs to be changes, drastic changes in how uh, we're governed. And my, my, I guess my, the final question would be what, are there anything you would like to lend to the listener in your final conclusion um, at this point? Um, well, I would say uh, let's not give up on uh, this uh, fact that 9-11, as I call it, was Moab, the mother of all backfires. It's not the mother of all bombs. <laughs> it's the mother of all backfires or blowback. I think they took a step, they went a little too far, these elites, the criminal elites that are running things that are really heading us in the wrong direction in so many, in all areas of government. And um, when it really comes down to what they're actually doing, it becomes apparent. And, and that can only be proven to be the case, the depth of this corruption, when people do easily, and I say easily, it's easy to wake up to the truth on 9-11 in terms of knowing that you are right when you say that the, the buildings came down from not from office fires, but from a much more organized and, and uh, sophisticated operation that has not been explained, but has but has caused all this violence around the world, and has grown the, uh, the zombie aspects of our economy just exponentially, which is the goal. It seems is what they're ideas to do and so we uh, we need to just be able to wake up in the morning with that depression of knowing 9-11 uh, was some horrible deed that was done by the people that we entrust um, and and it filters all the way down through our society people the AIA and all these organizations that are willing to look the other way and advocate their responsibilities um, even when it's we're talking about mass murder and genocide, which is what 9-11 is promulgated. Um, you got to be able to wake up in the morning with that reality and then fall back on the fact that, well, you know, we can turn this around on them. We can make it into the mother of all backfires. They did step over too far and it may have been intentional. It may have been a test of the elites to say, well, you know, if they can't get this one, if the people can't rise up over this one, and we then, you know, they deserve whatever we want to give them and whatever we determine is right for them because we've made it pretty damn obvious with this event here today, um, you know, 9-11 and the subsequent cover-up that, uh, you know, you, they can take the bull by the horns if they want to say to the government, hey, you know, those buildings were blown up and you have covered it up and that's a crime, a major felony. Um, so you, what are you going to do about that? I think that's the kind of strong attitude we need to have and not, and, and easy. It's, it's easy in a sense that you can be certain that you're right, but 
you know, it's not easy to know that you're a part of it. <laughs> and you've been part of it as you grew up from a baby. You've been indoctrinated. You've been in that rabbit hole that they created and, and you benefited from it. And um, you've been a part of it. And I've looked the other way on things. And, uh, you know, is it is this alternative truth is that really going to be better for humanity? Well, I think anybody would say if you're going to be in charge and you're going to plan an event like 9-11, that is not acceptable. <laughs> that has gone too far. And they made that obvious, I think. And I, I think it's just people have to wake up to their own humanity and take charge of their future. Um, and one of the ways to do that, the main way to do that is to say, well, you know, Anytime somebody of authority tries to brush you around and tell you what to do, you say, well, you know what? I'm not real happy with your system because you guys have to be involved with the 9-11 and there's no way you can just deny that. Okay. So don't think I'm going to sit over here and let you fly a plane into my apartment while I'm sitting here trying to do a good job. You've gone too far. So that would be where I would leave people. It's like, don't stop and don't be, get too depressed. This could be turned to our advantage and this could be the best thing that ever happens to humanity is the fact that we can uncover, it made it so easy for us to uncover this heinous crime and, and therefore turn over a new leaf. Ross Muir, 9-11 Truth Movement activist, human rights activist, thank you very much for coming on the show. And thank you so much, and I'll be glad to come back and elaborate on anything else you might like in the future. And Adam, thank you for uh, taking the time to put all this together and come down to 9-11 on the anniversary and all the other work that I've seen that you've been doing.